Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Roto, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Steve Lurch to talk about innovative thinking from the Silicon Valley to the farm. Thank you for joining us again, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to be back. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you had me back. Yeah. No, it's exciting to have you on again, and excited to talk through this topic. Uh, to start off, do you want to do a brief, I guess, uh, background again? I, I know we heard sure. you on the last podcast, but to, to learn to get about you again here would be great. Yeah, I'll I'll do it quick. I, I don't know if all your your listeners are episodic and they get every single one, so maybe they don't want to hear hear my background again. But I'll do it quickly. Um, yeah, so I have my own company called Story Arc consulting. It's a small business where I, I give speeches, which is how we met, uh, talking about consumer behavior and marketing and innovation. And then I also do consulting work in, in the digital world, the marketing world, and the strategy world. But most of my background was working at Google, uh, about a decade working for Google, mostly in digital marketing, but specific to this topic today around innovation. Um, something I'll add to my background was that while I was at Google working in digital marketing, I was asked to serve uh, as sort of a culture, cultural evangelist, so to speak, um, uh, an innovation evangelist. It was my job to speak in front of large groups of new employees. I probably did a, a couple thousand over my, my time at, at the Google headquarters in California. And I taught them about basically how Google has turned into one of the most innovative companies in the world. So the, the history of Google, the philosophy of Google, how we build our teams and, and plan our company around like a real true culture and mindset of innovation. So I got to teach that for a long time. And it's something I've, I've taken with me and um, a lot of the things I learned there and from other companies I've worked with. And um, now I spend a lot of time, whether it's up on a stage or, or doing workshops with companies that, that want to be a little more innovative. And um, yeah, it's a topic I, I really care about, really love. And um, yeah, learned a lot about at Google. So one thing I'd like to start off just because it's not every day that somebody hears from somebody that works at Google, even though you use Google every day. It's just unique. What was it like working at Google? And do you have a story about when you were at Google that just comes to mind like, oh, my goodness, this is this is so Google? Yeah, yeah I, I have so many stories that come to mind that I feel like are so Google. And the truth is, it was a wonderful place to work, especially my first five years. And this was right out. I started Google right out of college. So I was, you know, 21 or however old you are. I moved to California and I got to work at the headquarters, which to me, the Google headquarters, it was like Disneyland. I mean, it was just, uh, they, they spoiled us. They treated us really well. And um, I think we worked hard, but at the same time, I, I still felt very lucky and very spoiled. My, my one Google story I'll give you is, um, and this is, this is in one sense, very unique, but in one sense, very much represents life at Google. I, I pulled into the main campus parking lot one day uh, I worked kind of at a side campus, like a minute down the road, but I was going to main campus, maybe, maybe to eat. I can't remember what I was doing on main campus, but I parked my car and, and pulling into the parking spot next to me was a Prius, um, California, a lot of Priuses and getting out of the Prius. 
was Rain Wilson, who plays Dwight on The Office. Um, it was him and his, what I believe was his wife and what I believe was his son. And I found out later he was giving a talk at Google. It's not even something I knew. That, that's how big and crazy Google is. Dwight's coming to give a talk about a book he wrote. And you don't even, you don't, you don't even get on the radar of a lot of people there because um, there's so much going on. But so I'm walking in. I didn't talk to him. I didn't, I didn't want to bother him. He was with his family. But I overheard him talking to, again, what I assume was his son, a little boy, maybe five years old, six years, a pretty young kid. And I can't remember the kid's name, but let's just say it was John for the sake of the story. But nobody else is around. This is just Rain Wilson interacting with his family. He turns to his little boy and says, okay, John, or whatever the name was, you're at Google today. That means you can ask anyone here any question in the world, and they have to know the answer or they get fired. And I just thought that was like the funniest little thing that just like, that's just him with his family. He's just a funny guy telling jokes. Like there's no camera on. I'm the only person within earshot to hear that. Um, but yeah, Google is a very cool, very wild place. It was, it was fun. It was, um, you know, I, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a coder. I, I'd like to think I'm good at what I do and I'd like to think I'm smart, but be surrounded by some of those people, especially on the tech side who are building things that will change the world. It was, um, it was inspiring and it was fun and it was uh, a great, a great nine years working for Google. I loved it. That's awesome. So what is your experience like working for Google? Uh, what was that like? And, and how did you come to study innovation? Like you, you, you touched on it briefly, but yeah. how did you come to study innovation? Yeah, you know, really it started, and again, my, my full-time job at Google was always in sort of marketing and digital stuff. Um, that was where, what I was trained in. That's what I did day to day. That's what I helped my clients with. But again, it started with this opportunity where um, I was at, well, I wouldn't say I was asked, I, I was selected. I interviewed, I auditioned for this role of being able to talk to new employees. Um, you know, you met me giving a speech at a conference. So you know that I like to give speeches. I like to talk. I like to tell stories. That's just what I'm passionate about. So, um, and I loved Google. So when I heard there was a, a role they were looking for someone to fill to basically tell stories and to talk and to, to meet new employees on their first week at Google. I said, that sounds awesome. And as I sort of got into the experience and started learning sort of, you know, okay, well, what goes on at orientation? What are they already learning? What do they already talk about? What are the gaps? What do I wish I knew when I started? And a lot of it did come down to like this idea of philosophy to me or the study of culture that I really did feel like there was a specific way Google was doing things that led it to where it is. You know, it's, Google was a company that was just a website when it launched. It was just a search engine. There was no logical reason that today it also has a line of phones and operating systems and self-driving cars and thermostats and all this crazy stuff. Like there, that, was, that wasn't what it was. It was just a website. The reason it's done all these crazy things and why that website, google.com, that search engine has grown so incredibly is because of this culture, this open-mindedness, this nimbleness, this collaboration. That I just loved and I became obsessed with and, and getting to do this, this role, getting to evangelize sort of the culture of Google, evangelize innovation. I just had the chance to learn a lot. I had a chance to meet with a lot of people who had been at Google for a long time. I had a chance to learn from a lot of people about how different products came to be at Google so that I could tell these stories. And um, yeah, just kind of picked up things from a lot of people at Google and then started comparing that to what I saw working with my clients, which were Groups like GoPro and Fitbit, who in their own right were innovative technology companies. And later in my career working with the federal government, I had clients like the Census and FEMA and the Treasury, who in some ways are very slow moving and very stagnant, but in other ways are very innovative in the way they do things. And I've just kind of mushed it all together into this sort of idea of an innovative culture. And 
Um, it's just something that I believe every organization can benefit from and also that any organization can do. I, I think that's a common misconception too, that like we can't copy a company like Google because you know they're innovative because they've got a trillion dollars in the bank and they've got 10,000 of the world's best engineers. But I've definitely learned that like that that culture element, that philosophy element is so, so important. And um, that's what drew me to this topic. That's why I talk so much about this topic in my speeches and when I do workshops is it's just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, last time we talked, we talked about consumer behavior and how producers could look at better marketing themselves and, and using digital. But now today that we're talking about innovation as like the pork industry, why does this topic matter for farmers, right? Yeah, as producers, we're very innovative, but at the same time, innovation means a lot more than just one definition, right? Like you've talked oh, about yeah. of Google. So like, why does a broader understanding of the various forms of innovation matter to farmers? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the challenge, I think, that farmers face and we face in agriculture in that, you know, so many people in agriculture, this is one thing that's just so fascinating and so unique about this industry, right? You can't name another job in the world where children are as likely to assume the job that their parents did who assume the jobs that their grandparents did. It happens in other places, but there's nowhere where it's nearly as common as it is in agriculture. It is a, a traditional job that is passed down from generation to generation. Farms are passed down to generation to generation. And there's so much wisdom in that, and there's so much expertise in that, but there's also so many habits in that. There are so many farms that get led a certain way and where business gets conducted a certain way because, well, that's how my dad taught me. And that's how his granddad taught him. And that's how his mom taught him. And it, it goes back. And my, my wife comes from a sixth a family of six generations of farmers in West Texas. They grow peanuts and cotton and they have cattle. Um, and again, they're, 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 yes, there's tons of innovation in agriculture. I, I don't want to imply that there's not. But there's also a lot of very traditional thinking. And even for those producers who, who want to think outside the box and want to try new things and want to embrace new ways of thinking and new technologies, whatever it might be, sometimes there's just this subconscious barrier where you feel so good about what you do because you've been doing it for so long and you're so good at doing it that way. And it's always worked or more or less worked. So I think it's, it's easy in agriculture to fall into a pattern, especially if things are going well for you. If, if you run a successful farming operation or you're producing pigs successfully, it's so easy to just do the same thing year after year after year. And that's fine for some businesses. But the truth is, especially now, especially with technology, especially with COVID, the world is changing so much more rapidly than it used to, that it, it's very easy to fall behind now or much more, much more possible to fall behind now if you keep doing things the same way year over year. So I just think there's more of a, a pressure or more of a need for people in agriculture to, to take a step back and to say, okay, am I thinking creatively enough? Am I thinking innovatively enough? Am I willing to embrace change or am I stuck in, in a pattern? Um, again, patterns form through success and, and that's a good thing and makes sense, but they can also be really, really dangerous, especially in an industry like this. So why, before I, I hop on kind of, in a, I guess, what makes an innovative culture, I kind of want to ask, why do people fear innovation? Why do you think people are afraid of innovation? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I suppose 
the, the idea of innovation, as you said, it can mean a million different things, right? And, and to some people, it means technology and, you know, artif putting artificial intelligence and robots and stuff on the farm. So when I talk about innovation, yes, all that stuff is true. But I also think of innovation as just like doing something different, you know, as, as simple as doing something different to me is what innovation is. So looking at a challenge, looking at a problem, and then solving it in a different way than you solved it yesterday. To me, that's all it means. But again, and I talk about that idea with, with farmers and with agriculture, the, a lot of these people are people that are, you know, deep in their traditions and they really value maybe more than a lot of parts of our society value their past and value their traditions and value their history. And, um, you know, it's, it's very common and very normal and not just in agriculture, but in any business to look at change, to look at new as a challenge and a negative and a threat to the way you do things, especially agriculture, right? It's such a, an old and traditional profession that in so many ways in modern society, it feels threatened, right? And you look at pork producers, got all these new, new complaints that consumers have, whether it's about animal rights or environmental issues. You look at all these new threats of plant-based this and that, um, new diets, new trends, new, all sorts of new stuff. I think traditional agriculture, it, it, rightly so, feels threatened a lot. And sometimes I think when we're threatened, we tend to be more comfortable clinging to what we know and the way we do things versus being open-minded to well, what can I learn and what can I take from these new ideas? What can I take from this new reality I'm, I'm living in? So again, I, I think it's fear. And, and I think fear is a, is a complicated word as well. I don't mean to say that people yeah. are literally afraid of thinking differently, but I do think there's a real comfort in, in doing things the way you know how to do them and the way your parents taught you to do them and your grandparents taught you to do them. And and again, for a lot of people in agriculture, what they're doing works. So, and, and this is so true in other businesses too. Like I said, the GoPros and Fitbit of the world, I worked with them. And if they did something the year before and it more or less worked, it was real, real hard convincing CEOs and CMOs to, to try something totally new the next year, no matter how, what the consumer trend said, no matter what the data said. So it's true in every business. It's not just agriculture. If you have something that works or at least more or less works or works well enough, it's very hard to do anything that you feel like is a, is a risk. Yeah, I think I mean, we'll go to the stereotypical example of when you do something that works, stick to it because it's hard to change. But we look at Kodak and Sears and they're where are they? Like, yeah, they were doing things that worked, doing things that were leading in industry, but they stopped changing yeah. the pursuit of growing. And you eventually, it'll catch up to you. Do you know the, the story of Kodak? Just because you brought up Kodak. I don't think I've talked about this in my speech you heard me give Go in Ohio, share. but the story about Ophoto. Share it. So Kodak uh, bought a company. This is probably like, I, I'm going to get my years wrong, but it's, it's somewhere around 2000, let's say. So this is at a time when Kodak is like the kings of photography, right? They are a major, major company. They are a, a huge technology powerhouse, lots of money, lots of staff, lots of technology. So they buy this company called Ophoto, O-F-O-T-O. -O. It's a photography website. And I have a screenshot from the homepage from like 20 some years ago. And it says on the homepage, you can do three things with Ophoto. And this is once acquired by Kodak. It was like, you could, you could, uh, um, print your Kodak prints using the website. You could, uh, organize and edit your photos and you could share your photos. This is like 20, 25 years ago. Um, and what happens is Kodak looks at those three things 
And they realized that what consumers want to use the website they just acquired for are the second two things. They want to share and edit photos, basically. They want, or they want to organize and edit their photos, and they want to share their photos. Which now here, sitting here in 2022, and we hear, oh, a website to share and organize and edit your photos. Well, obviously, like that's, that's what you want. Yeah. But Kodak at the time made most of its money in photography from people printing their photos. So to them, they looked at Ophoto like this isn't working. This, this isn't, people aren't doing the thing we want them to do. People aren't doing the thing that makes us money today, our profitable thing. So they totally deprioritize Ophoto. They like break it down into parts. They eventually sell off the remains of it to Shutterfly like 10 years later. I forget for how much for it's like $25 million or something like that. And of course, we all know today Instagram's worth like, I don't know, some number of dozens of billions of dollars. And Kodak was there like 15 years before Instagram as a king of photography, as a huge technology player with huge budgets. And they had a website that does exactly what Instagram or Facebook photos or whatever does. But it just looked a little different to them. It wasn't the way they were successful today. So they didn't want to do it. It wasn't for them. And I I just I, I think about that story all the time. And and. The craziest thing about that is you can't even say, well, Kodak didn't know digital photography was going to be such a big thing because the first ever digital camera was invented like 15 years before that at Kodak. Kodak invented yeah. the first digital camera too. So like they, they, they had everything on their side to be Instagram, but plus cameras, plus all these other stuff. And they just, they, they didn't because it looked a little different. You know, and that's, yeah, that's the I lesson. Mean- I, I think like as an industry, we have everything we need to go out there and be the number one form of animal protein consumed by society. I mean, you look at Asia or Europe, it's up there, but we're three in the US and in North America. Well, yeah. What aren't we seeing? What did everybody yeah. else what do, what do we need to take advantage of? What do we need to do to change? But and what, not what even are, just the I was going to say, not even just the meats too, right? Like it's like the plant-based stuff. And like, I I look at dairy a lot as like a precursor to what's happening in meat sometimes with these substitutes because people have had soy milk and stuff forever, right? They've become more popular and there's more offshoots now, but soy milk has been around for, I don't know, decades. It took, I don't like 20 some years of soy milk slowly growing in competition before, at least to my knowledge, we started seeing serious dairy companies launch like blended blended milks or whatever they want to call them where it's like some dairy and some soy or they started taking some of the lactose out to sort of you know appeal to the people who are buying soy milk instead of just looking like for the first decade or 20 years it seemed like a lot of folks in dairy looked at that as a threat from the outside that they didn't like and they were uncomfortable with it and they just stayed away from it until they finally had to start i don't say embracing it but had to start kind of learning from what what was happening there and that's what meat companies need to do with plant-based. That's what pork companies yeah. need to do. Um, yeah, we need to look at these threats as, as opportunities to learn and to take advantage of, of them. I mean, when we think about, like, because for me, I love milk. But yesterday, I went and bought oat milk. Oh, uh-oh. Oat milk. How was it? Oat milk, it was, it was okay. But I, like, mix it with my protein instead of other milk. Okay. But oat milk lasts month. Oh, Yeah. Months. So here I am in this generation where I travel all the time. My generation yeah. lives to travel in a lot of ways. You know, we work to live. I'm more of a person who lives to work, but I'm still traveling a lot. And so unlike 30 years ago, where I probably home regularly, I'm going to go through my cartons of milk. I, I can't. I'm just going to have spoiled yeah. milk after spoiled milk. And so I do that. And that that that's a change. 
and consumer yeah. behavior. Yep. And you there's onto it. Yeah, that's that's so true. I, I'm a traditional milk guy myself. I, I love I'm a one percent regular old fashioned milk guy. But I live in a, probably a pretty typical American household, which is that it's me and my wife. We don't have kids, but um, I drink regular milk and my wife doesn't. She drinks soy milk or oat milk or almond milk. She, I, think, I don't even know what she's drinking these days, but she never drinks regular milk. It's always, so our fridge always has both. Um, and that's just becoming more and more common, I think. So I think I got to add, that was the first carton of oat milk I've ever bought. I'm a usually yeah. 2% guy. So for all the- Okay, 2%. Here, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I respect yeah. that. I, I 1% too- I'll drink skim milk, but I don't really want to. And same with whole milk. I, I don't really, I, give me one of the percents. That's, that's my, that's my wheelhouse for milk. I love whole milk, but I think the calories okay. is what does it for me. It's just, there's a lot there, the whole milk, but uh, all right. So to kind of move forward here, what does it mean to have innovative culture? Yeah. And we kind of touched on this a little bit, just the idea that innovation itself can mean a lot of different things. Um, but to me, it, Again, there's a lot of lessons I could go into, but the core of it is all about open-mindedness, right? It's all about being flexible and being willing to listen to new ideas wherever they come from, whether it's just looking at the market and seeing what's changing and seeing new consumer demands, whether it's getting feedback from your customers, the people that are buying products from you, whether it's getting feedback and new ideas from your employees, and just that true, true open-mindedness, right? That thing that right. I would say Kodak didn't have in that story I just told. But it's, it, it's that willingness to sort of say, you know, I'm not 100% sure that 100% of the things I'm doing are best. And I'm not sure that I, as a business leader, always have the solution. And you never, ever know where the right idea is going to come from, where a good idea is going to come from. So you kind of have to listen to all of it. You, you don't have to take everyone's advice and everyone's ideas, but you should get everyone's advice and get everyone's ideas. Um, and I kind of talked about this before, this idea of we need to get loud about our challenges. We need to get loud about the things we're trying to do and trying to solve because until the people around us, and it could be anyone from friends to family to employees to anybody, until they understand what we're trying to accomplish, there's no way for them to contribute. And again, it might sound silly to think that like your kid or your brother or the guy you play basketball with might have a solution you didn't think of for your, you know, pork production operation, but that stuff happens. That stuff happens, but it doesn't happen if we're not loud, if we're not open-minded, if we're not looking for new ideas and new solutions. So is that how we think out of the box? Is that how people can train themselves to think out of the box is to have an open mind to to listen to others' ideas? Because some people have that strength. Some people might feel like they don't. Yeah. Coach yourself to think outside the box. Yeah, I think at least for me, so much of it comes down to, and I kind of said this, but so much of it comes down to this idea that like, you never have to take anyone else's suggestions. You never have to take anyone else's ideas. In fact, I would say in, in my business, 99% of the things people recommend to me, I don't use, but I listen to all of it. Because if I get a hundred pieces of advice and one of them is good, and I can use that one forever to evolve the way I do my business, to evolve the way I live my life, to evolve my daily processes, that's meaningful and it's impactful. Um, I won't go get into the whole story, but I have this story I tell in my speeches sometimes about um, there was this janitor at Frito-Lay who, uh, long story short, he was a, a son of Mexican immigrants, didn't really speak English. CEO of Frito-Lay basically asks the whole company for new ideas. Janitor at a factory sees the video asking for ideas, calls the CEO of Frito-Lay, gets a meeting with the CEO of Frito-Lay to pitch an idea. And that idea ended up being Flaming Hot Cheetos. And it was just some factory janitor who 
thought, hey, we should have snack food that tastes more like the Hispanic flavors I grew up with. And I would say that CEO of Frito-Lay, he could have sat through a thousand meetings, 10,000 meetings with 10,000 low-level employees or janitors or whoever. And that one idea would have paid for them all a hundred times over. Right. So like, it's, it's fine if you don't take other people's advice, but go get it, go seek that advice. I think that's like the starting point. And that's the biggest, the part I think of the culture of how you do it is you just, you got to be willing to listen. You got to be willing to, to, you know, to, to start by listening. If you're uncomfortable with the idea of, of change, uncomfortable with the idea of other people contributing to your business, don't feel that pressure to change. Don't feel that pressure to take other people's ideas. Just put pressure on yourself to listen, to learn, to read, to observe. Um, you can always say no to ideas, but if you don't listen to them, people are going to stop giving them to you. Um, so you got to listen, got to create opportunities for people to give you ideas. Fair. So last time we wrapped up with the golden nugget, and it was something unique about yourself that other people do not know. I'd say this time around, what is what is something that when you do it, you're on cloud nine? For me, it's being on a boat on a lake with no phone. What hmm. for you? Okay. Like your go-to place for your your cloud nine stage of happiness. Man, that's a really good question. You know, probably my favorite thing to do. I'm gonna give you two. Um, I often talk to my wife about this idea of being irrationally happy about things of things yeah. that like, maybe these are things that everyone enjoys, but things that make you in particular irrationally happy. Um, the first one, uh, is when no one sits next to me on an airplane. Um, and I know everybody likes it, but I can't even describe to you my level of happiness. I'm an, I'm an aisle guy normally. And I travel a lot. I give a lot of speeches and when no one sits in that middle seat, I like, I'm like a kid sitting there watching all the people boarding the plane. Like, is that person going to say here? Is that person going to say here? And when no one does the level of happiness I feel is, is silly. It's I, I'm so excited. Um, but in turn to match your sort of fishing boating one, <clears throat> my favorite hobby is, is playing softball. Um, it's actually how I met my wife. It's, um, just my favorite thing to do. I, I played baseball all growing up and um, I've had three so- shoulder surgeries, so I can't throw a baseball quite as hard as I once did. But for now, for now, it's it's softball. So having a weekend softball tournament with my buddies, and especially when we travel, we'll, we'll get around to different states. Or we went down to Orlando last fall for a big one. Just having a weekend where I know all I'm going to do this weekend is play a bunch of softball games with my friends. Um, that's uh, that's cloud nine for me. Um, that's, that's awesome. So much fun. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you share your background and knowledge with all of our listeners, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Again, thank you for having me. It's it's fun to fun to chat with you and, and fun to be a part of this industry. Like I said, I'm I wasn't born into it, but I but I appreciate y'all letting me uh, talk to you all and and be a part of agriculture and be a part of the pork process. And um, yeah, just thanks again for having me. So, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you to uh, maybe even yeah. bring you in to, to meet with their team, how would they do that? Sure. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of outlined this a little bit, maybe more on the first radio one we did, the idea that I do I do a lot of speeches, I do workshops. So if this innovation stuff is interesting to you and you've got a team of people or a board of directors or, or your whole company, and you want somebody to come in and, and teach you how to think more innovatively and lead you through workshops, that's something I do. Um, but yeah, you can find me at my website, which is storyarcconsulting.com. Arc is just A-R-C, by the way. I know some people put an H, but storyarcconsulting.com. You can just Google me as well. It's Steve Lurch. I'm sure you'll find Story Arc Consulting, or you'll find my LinkedIn, which I'm pretty active on. 
Um, or you can email me, I guess. It's just storyarcconsulting at gmail.com. Um, storyarcconsulting at gmail.com. But, but yeah, anybody reach out. I'm always happy to chat and to brainstorm. If you want to hire me for something, all the better. But even if you just want to chat and network and tell me about your life and your business, I'm all for it. I, I just, I like meeting people and learning new things. So yeah, everybody should feel free to reach out anytime. Hey, thank you, Steve. Absolutely. Have a good one, man. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.